Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark. For those who are visiting today and you don't know me, uh, I guarantee you will know me a little better when I finish talking if you don't know me already. So today, um, I want to tell you a story. And that story has two characters in it. The first character is us, and the second character is them. And when I finish telling you this story, my, my goal is that you wouldn't just leave today thinking somebody told us a story, but actually you would visualize yourself becoming part of the story that I'm about to tell you. And the story begins with us. And there was an us. And in Genesis 1.26, it reminds us that the us that there was didn't want to be on their own. So they said to themselves, let us make man in our image. Let them rule. So in Genesis 1.26, we have us creating them. And the us is what Christians call the Trinity, Father, Son, whose name is Jesus, and Holy Spirit. So in the beginning, there was the Trinity, there was us, and there's no explanation for where us came from. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible just says it begins with God, and God is, and God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the us in the first part of this story. But us decided they didn't want to be on their own. And so they created them. And what we learn from Genesis 3 and verse 8 is that the whole point of us creating them is that they could meet in the middle and be called we. There was relationship. There was intimacy. So in Genesis 3 verse 8, you find that it says that us came into the garden in the cool of day to meet with them. So the intention always was in the us that there would be a them, but there would be intimacy and relationship, even friendship, and there would be nothing separating us from them. But in Genesis 8, in Genesis 3 verse 8, as you continue to read that verse, something happens and it's called sin. The Bible calls it sin. Sin enters the world and all of a sudden, there is now us and them. Sin has separated that which God had always intended to be joined together. So now there is distance. There is separation. There is no intimacy and there's now barriers being put up because it says the them, Adam and Eve, when us showed up, they ran and hid and they covered themselves. So the story so far is an us that created a them that wanted us to be together in the middle. But sin enters the world and all of a sudden there's an us and a them that was never part of the plan. And now there is separation, there's no intimacy and there are barriers going up between the us and the them. The great news is, if it's not good... It's not the end. So this is not the end of that great story of us and them. Because something beautiful and powerful happens next. 
one of them decides to become one of us in order that us might be restored to them. And the one of them that became one of us, his name is Jesus. And he was the one that was prepared amongst the us to stand in the gap between us and them and restore relationship and restore intimacy and break down every barrier that had come to separate us from them. Philippians tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus took on the form, became human, and in the process, one of us became one of them. And then in John 17, he prays this amazing prayer. He said, Father, even as I am in you and you are in me, I pray that them would be in us and us would be in them. It's not even with them, it's in them, us in them and them in us. I feel like I'm messing with your heads now. Us and them are all over the place, but you know what I mean. But you know, even that isn't the end of the story. The story continues today, and part two is also a story of us and them. But it's a different us and them that I want to talk about today. If you've got your Bibles with you and you can turn to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, the verses will show up on the screen. I just want to introduce to you the characters of us and them that appear in part two of this story. Verse 35 of Matthew 9 says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And in this passage, Jesus introduces to us the concept of another us and them. There is us, the workers... And there is them, the harvest. Now, if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian today in this room, then I am going to talk about you as if you're not here. I would love to talk to you. So when I finish talking, come and talk to me. But I'm going to talk about you because if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian today, then in this story, you are part of them. If you are a Christian today, then in part two of this story, you are in the us. So us, we're workers. Those who don't know Jesus are harvest. I'm not going to challenge what Jesus is saying here. That would be a really bad idea, wouldn't it? Let's face it. Not one of the best ideas I've ever had. But I am going to say this. This dualism of us as workers and them as harvest has to be stewarded really carefully because if we're not careful I'm a worker they're a harvest in that dualism people become projects and the purpose becomes a program and the mission becomes a meeting 
So I'm not arguing what Jesus is saying. I'm asking us to steward this idea really carefully because people are not projects. And our purpose is not a program. And our mission is not simply a meeting. I'm talking to us now. Those of you in the them category, just listen in. But this is about us. Those who would say we are Christians and therefore inside the envelope of the workers, right? This dualism shows up all over the place. Us, we're Christians. Them, they are what we call non-Christians. Us, as Christians over here, we're believers. Over here, they are unbelievers. Over here, we are saints, and over there, they're sinners. So our, our Christian vocabulary, oh, over here, we are saved. Over here, they are unsaved. It's a really unimaginative naming convention, isn't it? We basically stuck an un in front of everything that was over here and called it over there as an un-something. Over here, we are churched. Over here, we are unchurched. All dualisms which have the potential to be very unhelpful because what those dualisms do is they do the very thing that the Lord intended us not to do, which is to create separation and distance. And they put up, every single time we use one of those words, we effectively put a brick in the wall that separates us from them. My step count's going to be through the roof at the end of this talk. It's amazing. Um, and then the irony is that us over here as Christians, having created all of this distance and separation and built this really great wall, the unwall, <laughs> then go to seminars and watch podcasts about how on earth do we close this gap and how do we get over this wall? Well, it, we created it in the first place. So my thesis is the best way to do that is actually not to create that distance and that separation and that build that wall in the first place because it's never meant to be there. The moment us in part one became us and them, Jesus said one of us has to become one of them in order that one of them can be with us. And so he became one of us. And in part two of this story, really what I'm talking about is what does it look like and sound like and feel like for us to model the one that we follow, his name is Jesus, and do something about closing this gap, filling this gap and shortening this distance and bringing down this wall. So in part two of this story, I'm going to talk about us as them. What does us as them look like? What do I mean by that? When the sun shines on us, it shines on them. When the rain falls on them, it falls on us. Many of us had a desire to get married, so we got married. And some of our marriages become very challenging, and some of them break down and fail completely. 
guess what? Over here, the same is true for them. They want to get married. They get married. Marriage gets difficult. Sometimes it breaks down catastrophically. Them, they want to have kids. And then they find out they can't. And it breaks their heart. Over here, there's us. We want kids and sometimes we find out we can't. And it breaks our hearts too. Sometimes us, we have kids and then they break our hearts. Over here, there's them. Them, they have kids, and sometimes their kids break their hearts too. Sometimes them get sick, and they die before they were meant to. Sometimes us, some of us get sick, and sometimes we die before we were meant to. Bad things happen to them. Inexplicable things happen to them. Bad things happen to us. Inexplicable things. Things that we have no explanation for. We get old. Us, we get old. And eventually we die. They, they get old. And eventually they die too. Why am I saying all of that? I'm saying all of that to say that we have far more in common with them than sometimes we remind ourselves of. And actually, if us and them are going to be restored to them, we have to close the gap and model the one who showed us how to do that. I met a man once who was living on the streets. I've met many of them over the years. But this one particular man, I sat down and we were chatting and he'd been a, uh, worked in a bank, finance guy. And he told me a story and I, and I, I suddenly realised that I was one poor decision away from him. The only thing that separated me from him was a bad decision. And I thought, man, there go I, but for the grace of God. This gap between us and them isn't as big as I thought. I knew a young man once. Sarah and I met him. He'd just come out of prison and he had nowhere to live, so we invited him to come and live with us. And he lived with us for some time. And when he came out of prison, I, I took him to Tesco's to buy some clothes. And he looked like he'd been in prison, and he smelled like he'd been in prison. And I was walking through the door of Tesco's in Stratford with him. And I suddenly realized that everybody's looking at him. I could see everybody coming towards me, and then they were looking at him. And then, and then they, were, they were obviously just scanning him and deciding... He looks scary, and he did. He doesn't look well. He didn't look well either. Doesn't look like he's washed for a while. No, he hadn't. And those clothes are a bit terrible. And then it was causing, I could see fear and judgment rising up in these people. And I don't blame them for that, because he was, to, to them, he was looking just like he, <laughs> he was scary. And, 
But I suddenly got caught up in the fear and judgment that they were communicating towards him because I was standing next to him. So I was collateral damage in this process and I suddenly had a sense of what it feels like to be that broken that you become scary to people and subject to their judgment. And I thought, this is horrible. This is horrible. Dave actually went uh, on to uh, kill somebody. He didn't mean to do it. It was, he was sentenced to manslaughter, ultimately. And Sarah and I were at his sentencing hearing, and he was already, by that stage, he pleaded guilty, so there was not a question of would he get off or not. It was what would the sentence be, and the law is pretty ruthless. So we kind of knew what to expect. But his barrister, who was an amazing guy, wrote, wrote, wrote this life story down. And in court, before sentence was passed, the barrister stood there, just like Jesus. I thought he was just like Jesus. He, he was advocate between Dave and what the law was going to say. And he told Dave's life story and he said, "This, I know, Your Honour, this is going to make no difference to your sentence, but I think this man deserves to have his story heard. And this barrister read out Dave's story and it was the most heartbreaking story of abuse and rejection. And I looked at Dave in the dock and I thought, they go why before the grace of God. The distance between me and him was very small. It was called family. And I thought to myself, wow. And, uh, and he's, still, he's still in prison doing his sentence. But I often think about him. We, we visited him while he was still in strange ways, but he's not somewhere else now. But I thought to myself... The gap between you and me, Dave, is not that great. It's not that great. I worked with a man many years ago, a young man, who decided he wasn't a man, he was a woman. And on Friday, he went home as a man and he came back to work on Monday as a woman. And that week, I went to London to a meeting with him. And we were off the train in London and I was walking next to him on the platform. And I could suddenly realise it was like the Dave story, right? All of humanity coming towards us and their gaze was on him, not me. And then the fear and the judgement and the prejudice was written all over their faces as they recognised that's a man dressed as a woman. And again, I was caught up as an innocent bystander in this moment of realisation of what it feels like to be someone who doesn't really know who they are and is making their own way in this world the best way they know how and then watching the world's response to that. It was incredible. I had to deal with my own sense of I don't know how to make sense of this. I don't know what to do with this. But what I do know is Jesus never quit on anybody. He stayed in the game. He stayed in the relationship. 
Harper Lee said this in To Kill a Mockingbird. He said, there's only one kind of folks. Folks. And G.K. Chesterton said this, we men and women are all in the same boat. Upon a stormy sea, we owe each other a terrible and tragic loyalty. So this story, this chapter is, what does us as them look like and feel like and sound like? And what I'm saying to you is, us as them, we're much closer than we think we are. If we were to look at the world through the right lens. But what if we take this a step further and say, this isn't just about us as them. What does it look like to be us with them? In order to do that, I think we have to embrace our own humanity. I think us as Christians sometimes think we've become some sort of superhero. You know, we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us, but we are not Jesus. Amazing revelation there, right? And so we, I think, can take a lead from him and embrace our humanity. He did. If, if he hadn't embraced fully our humanity, he could not have saved us. So we have to embrace our humanity. We have to, we have to feel our own pain. I think it's impossible to feel somebody else's pain if we're not good at feeling our own. We have to be able to feel our own pain. <coughs> We, we, ha we have to, I'm going to say have to, apologies if that offends anybody, but I guess it would be a really good idea if we not just embraced our own humanity and our own pain, but then allowed that feeling, not that intellectual thought, that feeling to fuel our compassion for other people. You see, compassion means, two words, compassion, com means with Passion means to suffer. So when Jesus looked at the crowd and he had compassion on them, what was actually going on was he was embracing his own humanity and theirs. And love was no longer an intellectual idea. It was a feeling. He felt something. You see, I ultimately think we move because we're moved For God so loved the world that he sent. He moved because he was moved. Not by a rota, not by guilt, not by obligation, but by love. God so loved the world that he sent. Mark so loved the world that he went. What does it look like for us to be moved to the point where we move? Compassion is what fueled Jesus every single time he encountered broken humanity. It wasn't you making the place look untidy. He hasn't got OCD. He wasn't thinking, I need to clean this place up because it's untidy. 
He was moved at a really deep level by compassion, which means I'm suffering with you and I will suffer as you. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, For Christ's love compels me. Paul, not just Jesus, but Paul modelling what it was to be fueled by love and not compassion. Phil talked to us brilliantly a couple of weeks ago about it's not about obligation and duty. You know, we're talking about faith for salvation. There are many strategies church leaders can adopt. One of them includes a rota. There's a rota to love people well around here. Put your name on it. My turn's Tuesday, right? Or I'm going to make you feel really guilty if you don't. That, that whole sheepdog disguise as a Rottweiler called guilt, right? Guilt people. Phil did a great job of and, and, and deconstructing that and saying, that's not who we are. We don't love because of a rota. And we don't do things out of guilt. Neither do we do it out of, Jesus, I owe you one. All right, I owe you one. How do I pay you back? Some sense of obligation. We love because we love we love because we're being loved, first loved by him. And that is what I'm looking, encouraging us today to tap into, is, is that sense of feeling, not knowing something. So there is us as them, and there is us with them. I want to finish by saying, what do we do when we get there? You know, there is that sense of, so I'm, I'm walking alongside Dave or that person who has decided they're not who they think they are. They're somebody else. Well, what do I do? So I want to equip us all with a few thoughts about what does that look like? Because the reality is, us, we are different. We are different. Christianity is not one starving person telling another starving person where to find bread. That's not what Christianity is. So we are different. I want us to embrace our sameness first because until we embrace our sameness, the difference doesn't mind diddly squat. But once you've embraced the sameness, then you show up with the difference. And what is the difference? Well, it's not like I'm starving to death as well, but I think there's bread over there. No, we have tasted and we have seen. What does that mean? It means we have a story to tell. Every single one of us has a story to tell. You know, we haven't chosen a better way of life or we found a really great social club. That's not our story. Our story is the same as that of the widow at the, the well in John 4. Your story, if you've met him, and my story, as I've met him, is to say to them, come and meet someone who has told me everything about me inside and out. She doesn't go to the village with a theological exegesis of what the gospel is. She doesn't explain justification, sanctification, 
any kind of vacation, staycation, whatever. She just tells them she's met somebody and she really wants them to meet him because he's changed her life. One of the reasons why us, we stay huddled over here is because now there's a bit of a gap and there's some distance and there's a wall which makes it a bit inconvenient. But we're also scared about what happens when we get the other side because we feel like we're going to be outgunned by somebody who knows the Bible better than us or somebody's got a philosophy PhD. No disrespect to anybody who's got one of those. I would have loved one of those. We don't need to worry about the argument. That's not what we're going there to do. What we're going there to do is tell a story, not have a fight. So if somebody in a cult who probably knows the Bible better than me, because they read it more than I do, wants to start taking me to places in the Bible I've never been before that prove to me why Jesus isn't God, I do not respond with my Bible. I respond with my experience. You can... You can argue the toss all day long about what the Bible says, but one thing you cannot do over here is take away my story. And my story is I was lost. I didn't think God existed, and if he did, he had a funny way of showing it that he loved me. And I proved he didn't exist. And then as soon as I realized I'd proved he didn't exist, I felt very lonely. And then somebody said, you know what, despite the fact you don't like him, you don't even think he, he loves you. And I was drawn into a love relationship with Jesus who had been waiting for me all along to realize he was real and I could know him. You can take me anywhere in Leviticus you like that disproves that's possible. Tough. It's my experience. It's my story. And no one or no thing will ever take my story away from me. Neither will it take them away from you. So the widow at the well went to her village with a story. The beautiful thing about that story is the villagers all said, we need to go meet this man. They go meet Jesus. They fall in love with him. And then they say to the widow, do you know what? We don't just now believe in him because of your story. We now believe in him because we've met him and now we have our own story, right? So it's just about introducing them to the person of Jesus. The one of us who decided to become one of them in order that they might become one of us, right? It's all, it's all in that narrative of us and them. So you have a story. My story is saturated in hope, forgiveness, love. I came from a very broken home, as you know. I walked out of the rubble of a broken home with a black bin bag, with everything I possessed in it. And somebody said to me, my social worker said to me, don't let this define you. And it did for quite a long time, <laughs> until I let Jesus break that off me, and then, then I allowed him to define me. That's my story. What's your story? Because if you know him, you have one. Trust me, you have a story. You might want to sprinkle it with some Bible verses, but that's like salt and pepper. <laughs> the main event is, what's your story? So really practically as we finish, we're over here. We've transitioned from us as them to us with them, and we've got a story to tell. So this is really practical now. Forgive me if this is so practical. It, you, you kind of, well, we know that. Well, if you know it, then do it. Because basically our problem is not so much that we don't know what to do. It's that we know what to do and we don't do it. There's a business strategy book on entirely that subject. But let me just give you a few pointers. One of the ways to break down the us and them dualism is to make friends. 
Make friends with them. Us can be so busy spinning around us that we have no time for them and therefore they have no time for us. Make friends. Jesus partied with prostitutes and sinners and they called him a friend of sinners and they thought that was an insult. He thought that was a powerful affirmation of exactly why he'd come. Thank you for that compliment. You're welcome. Make friends with them. Ask questions. Us sometimes can get so wound up about, right, what's the gospel in three bullets? No, um, try this. How are you? And then stop talking. And then listen for the answer. And listen really well to what they say. Because everyone has a story. When you say, how are you? Not even how you're doing. I've scratched out doing because I'm, I'm less interested in doing. I'm asking, like, how are you being, really? How are you? People start to talk and they say things and you think, wow. The woman at the well and Jesus conversation is classic, right? He gets her talking and she says all sorts of interesting things that he then responds to. Be kind. You know, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of judgment in us, in me, let me own that. When I see somebody like Dave coming through the doors of Tesco's, I can, I can easily find myself afraid and judgmental. Danger. Right? Scary looking guy. Which aisle is he going down? Frozen food, right? I'm off to the fresh bread over here. I'm off to the bakery section, right? I can easily find myself doing that. Be kind. You have no idea. We have no idea often what that person's story is until they tell us. When you've listened to their story, in my experience, almost always, because they are quite polite. Them are quite polite. They do understand. I've been talking for quite a long time now. What's your story? And that's when we get the opportunity just to say, well, here's my story, yeah? I have a 30-second, a three-minute, and a 30-minute vision of my story, which I filter depending on how much time I've got. If it's Tesco's and you're in the checkout, 30-minute version's probably not going to cut it, right? So I can maybe get away with a three-minute version. Sometimes it's a high buy, and it's a 30-second version, but I'm going to leave you with some part of my story. And then finally, when, you've, when us are really brave, we go... Can I pray for you? Whoa, somebody give me a medal of courage. I've just offered to pray for somebody. That can be a scary moment. I mean, in, in 30 years I've been working in, you know, in, the, in the world, it's like somebody often will present you with a problem and you think, Ooh, I really need to pray, but I'm feeling like... And, but I just learned to build a bridge and get over it eventually. And I think, can I pray? And you need to, get, some people were like, not now, Cato, right? In which case, you just have to say, okay, well, I'm going to pray when you're not here, right? <clears throat> Either way, the offer to pray has created a portal for heaven to touch earth and, and has raised that person's awareness of the fact you believe in someone who you pray to and has answers that you don't. And you know what? Maybe that's all we have, that's all we have to do. But that's enough. Because not only are we not Jesus, we are neither the Holy Spirit either. <laughs> and it's Holy Spirit's job to convict, 
we just kind of pushed him out of the way. And the church is like elbowed the Holy Spirit out of the way. And it's our job to make everybody feel bad around here. No, 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 no. Let Holy Spirit work on them and their heart. And even his job's not to make them feel bad. It's to convict them with the realization that maybe there is someone called Jesus who came from us to them that we might be with them. And that is exactly what happened to me. Somebody just said, this guy's real and you can know him. And I believed him. And I started a conversation with him and he answered back and I thought, whoa. The offer to pray, which is why we have the prayer wall to my right, your left. Uh, partly because it's a, it's a prophetic provocation, practical provocation for us to pray. Specifically for individuals. One of the things that I think disturbs people generally these days is what we call compassion fatigue. You know, the internet can deliver, depending on your broadband speed, can deliver to you more bad news than you can possibly handle in a nanosecond. What that does to all of us is we basically just switch on the anti-bad news filter. So we don't see it here. And if we do, it comes through a very, 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 very robust filter because we can't allow that to affect us because there's just so much of it. There's something really healthy about that, by the way, right? Because there is more need out there than we can mentally and emotionally steward. So we have to be very careful about how much we take on. However, loving the one in front of you is the key. The way you make sense of what you cannot do for the million is what you can do for the one. Which is why we pray and we put names on pieces of paper because that's our way of filtering it down to the one person we think we can really make a difference for. So in a minute, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray for the people named on that wall. In the process, as we pray, if you want to go across and write somebody's name on a piece of paper and push it into the, the wall, you can do that too. But before we do any of that, I just want to give you and Holy Spirit, one minute. I don't really mind what you think right now. I'm much more interested in what you're feeling right now. Emotion is energy in motion. For God so loved that he sent my prayer for this talk today has been that I would say something that would move you in order to move you. That I would say something to myself that would move me in order to move me. And I just want to give 60 seconds to you and Holy Spirit to say, what do I think about that? You might think, I don't know, I'm not even going to go there. What you think is what you think. I'm way more interested right now in what you feel. I'm asking you to tap into your emotional energy and say, how would I repackage and repurpose how I'm feeling right now, Holy Spirit, to translate what I've heard into something? Because the way we, James said, don't be, don't be hearers only, be doers. The way that you stop just being a hearer is because you do something. What I'm saying is do something, but do something fueled by the way that you feel, not what you think about this talk.
So you can stand, close your eyes, do whatever you do to feel comfortable. But I'm just going to ask Holy Spirit to partner with you. So Holy Spirit, right now, would you partner with every single person in this room, whether we are in us or them? Holy Spirit, just settle on our hearts and minds. Partner with us right now in this minute to show us, help us to feel what we feel and help us to understand what we do with that feeling.